0: But if this experiment succeeds, science wins.
1: Okay, I'm recording this conversation and I want to go on the record as having advised you against this. Death will occur in 10 seconds. Frank Benetti is officially deceased. Death occurred at 10.01pm on the 31st of October. Should this have worked by now? Yeah, well it's taking a little bit longer than the guinea pigs.
0: Resurrection has failed. Subject is still deceased. Hello and welcome to the Maths Movie Reviews podcast. I am your host Matthew Perkovich, and this is episode number 243. Available now on Amazon Prime and Google Play is Tabernacle 101, a supernatural thriller in which an avowed skeptic undergoes an experiment to disprove the afterlife only to open up a portal which all matter of demon infiltrate the land of the living and create chaos. A film that deals with heavy themes but doesn't get in the way of delivering genre thrills. Tabernacle 101 also marks the fourth feature film from director Colm O'Murku who joins me now on the podcast. Colm, I thank you very much for joining me today. Yeah, thanks for having me, mas So this film is such an interesting premise. There's a lot of things going on in Tabernacle 101 and I think what i always ask when I, I i'm approached with films like this is what was the original spark what was that original central idea that kind of like started the wildfire that became tabernacle 101 yeah well um it was a couple of things uh, the first one was that
1: i had a lot of friends who were devout uh, i i used the word devout devout atheists so uh, they'd get very emotional if you argued any uh, any sort of defence of religion or spirituality or New Age. They'd get really, really angry, and it reminded me a bit of Richard Dawkins. On you just had to go to YouTube and put that in, and how angry he used to get as well if anyone didn't accept absolute reality and absolute atheism. And I found that concept quite interesting um, simply because it it was like they just lived in one reality and couldn't expand out and see the concept of other things that might be out there, such as psychic mediums, uh, such as spirituality, such as, you know, all the religions in the world. It was like that was just basically cut off. So the premise I came up with was what would be the worst thing you could do? And that is to start having paranormal activity happen to that atheist. And that was how Tabernacle 101 started out. That was the start of the story or the premise, so to speak. So that's where it started from. And then my other half and myself, we went away for a story weekend, which we often do. And in that three days, we began to flesh out the whole film story.
0: You mentioned before... Well, you see in the trailers as well that the film deals with these heavy themes, religion, spirituality. You mentioned you have friends who are more in the militant, kind of atheist kind of way. What about yourself, Colm? Are you kind of like more into the kind of like re- religious aspect of things? I myself am a practicing Catholic. So anytime a movie comes across that deals with kind of themes that touches and anything like that, it immediately draws my interest. What about yourself, Colm? Is that, is that something that you kind of uh, delve into as well? Well, funny enough, I was brought up a
1: very strong Catholic. In, uh, I'm, I'm originally from the Republic of Ireland, Dublin. And, um, you know, when I grew up way back, gosh, in the, in the, the late 60s, 70s, uh, Catholicism was extremely strong in Ireland. And it was very all-putting to young people living through that period of, you know, the 60s, 70s, when everything was changing. And so uh, today, of course, Ireland is completely changed. And... Um, back then 98% of people were going to the church and today only about 45% Mm -hmm. so uh, Ireland of today has completely changed now that's getting off the point but back to me um, look I've always been very very curious and my other half she was a practicing psychic medium Uh, she gave it away because it just got too weird and too many weird things were happening uh, and a lot of the, the the strange events were put in this film you know knocking doors uh, dishes flying around the places uh, lots of different poltergeist activity that can happen if you have a medium or a psychic uh, with that with that portal open so to speak to the other side Uh, you can get a lot of spooks coming around, uh, was I an an atheist at one point till my uncle died and all this strange activity started happening the very next day. Um, and uh, when I talk about it, it sounds to certain people that that might be quite crazy, but when you actually see the evidence and there is a line in the movie, any scientist knows that. Now, if you start getting evidence of, of, um, spirituality or psychic paranormal activity, then, you know, you can't just deny it. You have to start going there. And so, in a way, um, Tabernacle 101 is a little bit of my own story.
0: It's, in a lot of ways, the film also kind of reminds me of, of certain of a certain type of superhero film as well. I mean, there's good, there's evil, there's a character um in uh, your, your lead character who is kind of like very much in that Doctor Strange kind of mold, starts off as a sceptic, but, but then becomes masters of certain kind of like you know, magical, supernatural elements as well. And I'd imagine as a filmmaker these days, Colin, that the whole superhero genre thing is such a dominant thing in cinemas. It's such a dominant thing in the popular kind of culture as well. I mean, do you find that when you come up with say a genre film like this that you have to cater in any way to those kind of tastes to get interest from the audience to want to watch a a film? Um Funny enough, we saw Doctor Strange
1: after we'd finished shooting um, the film, we went, oh gosh, there is a lot of similarities with our one. Um, look, to answer that question, we decided we wanted to make something supernatural um, and, and, and and somewhat spooky. We didn't want to make a horror movie, per se, so like some people have called it a horror movie. It's definitely not a horror movie in mm. the true sense of horror movies. It's more a supernatural a uh, spooky, eerie film with a with a a buddy buddy relationship between the psychic medium and the atheist trying to uh, stop the evil coming into the world. Um, do we have to go for the comic films? You know, it is a, a big influence today because the distributors have found uh, and the studios over in America have found those films do extremely well at the box office. Um, The box office has really changed, as anyone who goes to the cinema can see. There's a much less... I mean, Martin Scorsese, for example, is releasing The Irishman to Netflix. I don't believe it's going on a cinema run. I may be wrong there. I think that's very sad. You know, a film like The Irishman would be just like The Goodfellas. It would be out there for months in the cinema, and that doesn't seem to be happening now. So we are in in an age where the comic book, the sequel uh it seemed to be dominating and uh, you know occasionally you get a great film. i saw quentin Tarantino's once upon a time in hollywood there's mixed uh, feeling on that film but uh, you know i really loved it i just loved seeing a good old-fashioned um close to art house style film in the mainstream and you know occasionally you get a rom-com these days but they're occasional everything seems to have quite changed. And, if you you know, a lot of people now are just watching things on Netflix because it's so cheap and an Amazon Prime and it's so cheap. And uh, to get them out to the cinema, you need a comic book or a big movie, so to speak.
0: Yeah. Well, um, I'm, right. pretty, yes, yeah, okay. I'm pretty sure the Irishman is having a theatrical but like a very limited, like a week run in the States so he can qualify for Oscars because I think the Oscars say you can't yeah. have it go straight to streaming. So he's having like a really brief thing, but you're exactly right in that. The Scorsese thing is really interesting to me because he's always been a champion for cinema and for also, you know, he was a champion for shooting on film for a long time as well, but then he switched to digital as well. So I think it just goes to show that even the the once upon a time kind of very much uh, uh, advocates for the traditional methods of things have uh, moved on to, to different and uh, newer technologies.
1: And I'm sure there would have been a, an audience for, you know, a three-month run in multiple cinemas for The Irishman. Uh, funny enough that you say that, the, the um, John Travolta's new film, The Fanatic, mm. we saw it. It was in the same cinema that we were released in on a one-week run in Hollywood. Like, we were released on Hollywood Boulevard. And John Travolta's movie uh, was released side-by-side side with us. You know, like, we were one time, there, he, he was the other time. And it was a fantastic film. We saw it. The audience clapped. But it was a tiny audience. It was about like 30 people. But everyone was clapping. And uh, this is an amazing movie that's just going straight to streaming now. Yeah, I guess it's the signs of times changing.
0: I, I, I think it is. Well, I mean, you I, a lot of the films that I'm watching these days, like I, I, when I first started doing this, there was screenings every week. But now a lot of my stuff I watch is screeners because a lot of films is going to uh streaming sometimes it's like the concurrent kind of screenings where there's like theatrical and streaming campaigns at the same time um in regards to your film let's just get back to tabernacle 101 i want to yeah. talk about um the the need to your film it deals with big ideas but you're working on a budget of three million dollars so Your film requires visual effects work, but you need to get the right visual effects work for your movie with the budget that you have. And I'm really curious about how much work before cameras even roll goes into finding the right kind of visual effects houses to help you achieve your goal and what you want to present on the screen. And and then after that, how much time does it take in post-production to get all that stuff right? Yeah, there was a lot of VFX
1: in Tabernacle, and here comes a confession. We made this movie on 80000 Australian dollars wow. U.S. Um, and if anyone sees it, they'll go, wow, how did they do it? It's a, an amazing achievement. Uh, the $3 million that you see in IMDb was a mistake. Uh, somebody filled in the page and put production value. Uh, uh-huh. $3. <laughs> so um, it's stuck there now. So everyone thinks we've got a $3 million movie which is great if we had, but we actually made this on the smell of an oily rag. I mean, when we say fifty to $80,000 cash budget, uh, what we really mean is that's the cash we spent. But all the facilities, for example, I own all the cameras, you know, the red cameras, the lights, the sound equipment, the cranes, the tracks. So none of that was counted into the budget. But if you did count it in, it would beef up the budget. Um All the actors were shareholders uh, of the film. Uh, When I say shareholders, they own a small percent, um, which is paid out of first dollar. So, like, first dollars in from all the the box office last week and the screenings. In about three or four months, they'll be getting a check. Do you know what I mean? And Mm -hmm. we shot weekends. Uh, When I say weekends, like five-day weekends. Um, And uh, then we'd have a break of five weeks and then another five-day shoot and then another five-week break and then another... and that meant we could do it on that money because if you try and do it all in one hit, it would be impossible. Now, I'm, I want to get back to your VFX question because the, here's the thing. If I was doing it again, I would go through India. So if anyone's out there, you know, who's making movies and listening to this, don't go with the student like we did who's been doing it for three years at, 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 at you know, at some university or uh, technical training college. Don't go with that person. That was a mistake in a way that I think I made. And I had to cut out a lot of the VFX. Um, are you there? Yes, I'm here. Yes. Uh, so what? What I would highly recommend is going through India. So India is the place to get your. Now we ended up. I was probably one of the most expensive parts of our budget. I probably spent eight to ten thousand on the VFX. Mm-hmm. Um, so you know, um, basically, we, we would just send through the clips to the VFX guy. Uh, he'd come back with it i'd give him feedback just like you do with say uh, i don't know something you're doing in fiverr um he lived here in sydney over in hornsby and then we go back and forth till till i was relatively happy with the vfx but you know gosh i would have loved to have had money and just gone through india and probably in the end it would have cost around eight to ten grand in india it's so cheap over there and they do amazing stuff you'll find a lot of the hollywood Studios go through
0: India. Well, they got their own big industry over there, Bollywood as well. So I'm sure there's a lot of kind of like remnants from uh, from that as well in all, in all type of facets of filmmaking. Yeah, exactly. But I do think the VFX is quite good in our film. It yes. may not be perfect, but it's still
1: quite good. You know, for for that budget, it's incredible. You know, <laughs> so um, but you know you're competing with Hollywood movies of a hundred and fifty million dollar budget, and here's our tiny little film um, budget. And our tiny—I didn't mean tiny film because it looks great. It looks big, but uh, our small-budget film competing against that sort of budget—it it, is—it is challenging. Yeah.
0: Essentially, Tabernacle One and One is is a film that taps into the eternal question of whether the supernatural is real. Um, I was going to ask whether the film changed your perspective in any way in regards to that. I mean, from what I can tell from what you, your answer from before, it seems like you're very much more, more in the vein of a healthy agnostic. Would that be uh, correct, Colin? Um, no, I do believe there is other runs out there and there is
1: paranormal activity. And I do believe it because I've seen evidence of it. Right uh, with My partner. But, um, and in the house, um, and thankfully uh, she decided to quit it just for that one reason, to, to get rid of the spooks, and since she's quit and just doing a normal job, every, nothing ever happens anymore, <laughs> so uh, being a medium, you attract a lot of spirit, um, and before I met her, I didn't know much about it, I was probably a healthy agnostic at that point, mm. but once again, I'll get back to that point that, you know, once you start seeing evidence and you start seeing facts and you start seeing things happening, you, can't, you just can't stop denying these things, uh, which is the story of Tabernacle 101, by the way, part of the story.
0: And I also read that when you filmed in the Blue Mountains, that supposedly when your editors were looking over footage of the film that you might have captured something on cameras. Is this true? Uh, well, yeah, a few things, actually. The one I think you're you're
1: referring to we call it the conjoined twins because it, it when you're shooting a film you always have a clean set and we're up shooting outside Katoomba Hotel and one of the reasons I like shooting in Katoomba is it, if you ever go up there you'd see the streets at night are quite spooky and eerie mm-hmm. and, and it's a great location um, for shooting your film and uh, plus you have all the scenery but um, with, with with that, on a night that we were shooting outside Katoomba Hotel, in one of the takes, the car spins around. And if you slow it down and just pause it, you'll see the shape of um, two people okay. uh, conjoined into one body. Now, uh, whether that's some accidents that two people were standing there and there's an optical illusion or not, or some spooky, strange thing uh, is a big question, you know. But none of us could say we never. Gosh, there was never anyone over there on the night. You know what I mean? It was only when we saw it in the footage that we said, "Gee, that's very, very strange." So it's one body, two heads.
0: So just to confirm, is that actually in the final cut? Like what? From what I saw when people watch it, is that there? Yeah, I can send you a screenshot if you like. I'd love to see it. I definitely yeah. would because I, I only watched the film like a few nights ago. Um, and yeah. I was like, I'm, I'm in, but it was only afterwards when I was doing some research that I read about this, um, what you guys supposedly captured on the film. So I wasn't sure what what to look at. But I think I might want to try to get back there. But if you see the screenshot, I wanna, I definitely want to have a look at this because I love stories like that and I love stuff like that. So yeah. I definitely yeah. want to see it.
1: Yeah, I'll send you a screenshot for sure. Excellent. And uh, that's easier than trying to pause the film. <laughs> and, uh, you know, so there you go. We must put it up online, actually. Yeah, uh, that's you just giving me an idea for our next post.
0: I think it's a good idea because I always love when, like, for example, I'm a big fan of The Exorcist. It's one of my favorite movies of all time, and I'll have. Every documentary made about it, and I've watched every interview, and I, and I always found it really interesting about the curse of that film and all the different type of strange things that happened on that set. Same with Poltergeist; it's kind of like these are uh, urban legends are in, in 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 things that came out from those movies. So I think stuff like that would be really interesting for people to have a look at. So if you have a screenshot or something, I'd definitely put it up there on on all over your socials and just have people try to comment on it. And and I don't know, yeah. maybe maybe it could be the official mascot for the film. Yeah. Yeah, no, we'll definitely do that. You've definitely
1: given me that idea in the last few minutes. Um so that will be interesting. We we had uh, incidents of gear just all closing down on certain shots and really weird things happening on set like that as well and people couldn't understand it. All the lights going out.
0: Stuff like that. Okay. Yeah. Very interesting. Um I wanna talk about the main character of, of Frank. Um <laughs> And Frank is played by David Hoth. Um, and it's his biggest role to date. Um, and he's pretty much in every frame of this film. So you needed to find an actor um, who can really kind of take on that responsibility. How did you know that David was the guy to play this role for you?
1: Yeah, well, look, um, because of the budget of the film, we couldn't go to the high-end casting directors. So... What we did is we scarred all of Star Now and sites such as that. And over a period of uh, six to eight weeks, we saw about three or four hundred people. Somewhere in that bracket, three to four hundred. We never actually counted, but it was somewhere in in between there. Uh, on a press round, which we shortened down to about uh, 25, 30 people um, for the main roles. You know, about three or four on each short list for... Uh, each role, and David is one of those for Frank. And um, um, But David has been great, David has been really good, and I think he has that vulnerability that really suited the role, you know, you see it in his eyes um, right through the film. You know, he's he, he's uh, at, the, at the beginning he's arrogant, and he's know-it-all, uh, his character that is, the Frank character. And then slowly but surely after he dies for one hour and comes back to life uh, and he's getting stalked by these demonic entities um, from the other side, um, he slowly uh, begins to realize uh, you know, that his, his world as he knew it is destroyed and he has to change. And suddenly all that vulnerability comes out of, 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 of the character. And David nailed that, I, in my belief. You know, I think he really did an amazing job. And so what we were aiming to do through all our casting was find the best up-and-coming talent, you know, because we weren't going to get the Hugo readings, we weren't going to get the Jack Thompson's and the uh, Russell Crowe's and all those top-line actors into a such a small-budget film. So what we had to do was find a new generation of actors that are are coming true. Uh, in my last film, Dealing with Destiny, uh, we had Luke Arnold cast, and he came through Star Now as well. And then he ended up playing Michael Hutchinson in the In Excess uh, miniseries. Mm-hmm. You probably remember it a few years ago. It was a tremendous role for him. And uh, then he went on to do multiple other feature films and a, a TV series over in South Africa called Long John Silver. Um, so, you know, it's great discovering talent and seeing where they can go afterwards with it. And that can be the fun of a low-budget film.
0: Yeah, and it's really interesting uh, Really interesting to note that um, throughout the history of Australian cinema, genre films has been there, and it's a genre of films that always found our uh, biggest stars as well. I mean, there's no uh, Mel Gibson without the $100,000 budget of Mad Max to, be, to start his career off. And it's really, um, I think people really need to uh, remember that sometimes, I think. Yeah. Um, I hope it's the same for David Hoff. We'll be saying the same thing about him in a few years. (laughs) Yeah, I hope so too. Mm -hmm. Um, I really liked the idea of a resurrection through scientific means, Um, and a lot of it goes back to really goes back to Frankenstein. Really, I mean, and a lot of films have tapped into that kind of thing as well. Um, Yeah, yeah, yeah. And and, um, I sent you a link um, earlier in regards to this report that came out. I think it was in April this year are um, about scientists in the u.s bringing back pig springs back to life they're using science to to get the but the nerves working again in, in pig spraying. and 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 while it's cool to see that kind of thing on a big screen i think real life applications of that type of scientific method in my in my viewpoint is kind of you know, stepping over a certain fre- threshold that people shouldn't really, you know, step over. Because I've seen way too many horror movies in, in genre films like yours to, to know that it's a bad idea to even go through down, down that road. Um, what about your, yourself, Colin? Do you, do you think that, you know, dealing with that kind of stuff uh, is just maybe just a, a, a little step too far in regards to uh, scientific exploration? <laughs> it's a very interesting question because humans
1: are so curious, aren't we, you know? It's going to be impossible for us to hold back in that one, I think. I think somebody's going to try and do it, you know, bring people back to life two days after they're dead and um, see if it works. Um, Yeah, and then we get into all of that discussion about where the spirit goes after you die, you know. Mm -hmm. Can you bring someone back to life? um, Are you just bringing back a brain that functions, eats, and does the consciousness come back into the body? Um, And that would be a fascinating question. We, we already know that there are people who've died for 20, 30 minutes and come back to life and have uh, told of fantastic experiences on the other side. There's a famous book, you know, that kind of influenced me. It's about a neurosurgeon who died um, in an accident and was dead for an hour, and he went to heaven, he said, and he was a complete atheist before. I'm trying to remember the name of the book now, but it's a very famous book on near-death experiences, and if anyone Googles neurosurgeon who went through near-death experience, they'll be able to find that book. It's an incredible book read. And um, I just think uh, we're too curious. So I think if somebody can do that, they'll give it a crack, you know. Like if we're going to go to Mars, we're going to do it. I actually grew up, for. Um, I was eight years old when the, the we first landed on the, the moon. And I remember the fascination and the amazement uh, at the time. Like we were all... At eight years of age, you knew everything that was happening with that. And it was just incredible. And we've never had that feeling back since. And I'm hoping that we'll come back with missions to Mars. And that leads me back to the experiments with the near-death experience. Um, you know, somebody's going to do it. Whether it's a good thing or a bad thing, um, that's a very interesting uh, ethical discussion.
0: I think, I think the book you're referring to is called Proof of Heaven, A New Resurgence, near Death Experience and Journey into the Afterlife by Eben Alexander. Does that sound like that's the one you read?
1: One. Yeah, I loved that book. I read it about 10 years ago.
0: Yeah, it's got really good reviews online still. I think like Goodreads has given it like 93%. So it's a very popular book in, in there. Um, and I just want to talk about an experiment of a different kind, more of a grounded experiment that we can definitely tap into. And that's your film, Tabernacle 101, Similar to a lot of Australian filmmakers I've talked to over the last couple of years, a lot of filmmakers are testing the foreign market, especially the American market. Um, with their releases before releasing in Australia. Um, and so in regards to Tamanaka 101, um, last week, I think it's August 30, you guys had a uh, like a, a week or so of a theatrical run. You talked about how it was in cinemas alongside the latest films from the likes of John Travolta. Um, it's now available here in Australia on, on through uh, streaming and digital. Um, but the decision to go America first, to go international first, as opposed to the traditional way of doing the Australian market, building up stuff in here, and then taking it overseas. Um, Where where did that decision um, come from, Colin? Uh, Okay, I'll just be completely honest. The distributors wouldn't even acknowledge our existence here.
1: Mm. Um, We emailed them several times. Uh, I know Yolandi, my co-producer, emailed them so many times, phoned them, this, and uh, they didn't want to know about it. Now, that is a complete change from 10 years ago when I, you know, around 2007, 2009, where they'd actually come to your first night's screening. So what that means is um, anytime, unless you're recommended to them um, by some famous person here or some well-known entity here in the film industry, you're not going to get your foot in the door anymore. They're not going to even acknowledge you. You go straight into their spam folders. They ignore your calls. So uh, we, we came up against essentially a blank wall. You, you couldn't even get them to watch your trailer. Uh, which I think is very disappointing. I think there should be a process if somebody goes to the, through the whole uh, process of making a $3 million budget production value movie that uh, is getting very well received over in the film markets that they should look at it. Because, so what we had to do was go to Cannes market in the American film market and get interest over there and we had probably about 15 different international sales agents and distributors begging for the film at one point. And, um, you know, part of the beginning of this year was trying to decide who to go with. And so we were basically emailing producers who'd worked with these distributors and saying, are they honest? You know, there's a, a lot of tales about certain sales agents. They never pay you a dime once they get your movie. Hmm. Um, and so we were just basically going, you know, are they honest? And the one that came up being honest all the time is the one that we ended up with, um, Indie Film Rights. And um, they were the one who wanted to release it for a week in the cinema to give it that cinema release. So you get your LA Times um, you know, review, your, your Hollywood Reporter review. Um, you come this release, it's all over the papers over there. People see it in all the ads before YouTube videos that it's coming to the cinema. Um, and so you get this awareness over in America that your film is around. So you, then you have a very good um, release on Amazon Prime, which is very big over in America, by the way, much bigger than here. Yeah. Google Play. Yeah.
0: I mean, uh, is there also a thing where I, I read a report from a couple of weeks ago um, It was in regards to an Australian film that came out called Danger Close, and this was a movie that had to do with uh, the Vietnam War, big budget, $25 million, um, had a bit of a push behind it as well in regards to, and it had star power as well, but people just weren't watching it. Is it a thing of that Australian audiences um, have just become, I don't know, uh, somewhat... Skeptical, somewhat allergic to watch Australian films. Have we hit a, hit a part now where the only thing that people want to watch in cinemas to go back and what I was talking about before in regards to superhero moves and such, is movies like that? I mean, is Australian films kind of doomed to kind of just like uh, uh, not get the proper kind of like uh, respect that it's supposed to give in our own cinemas? I think so, yeah. Look, um, the release, you're right. That's the film by Thrive Standards,
1: That's think? right, yes, yeah. Yeah, what a shame! And that was a genuine twenty-five million spent in that. Yeah. Um, uh, like unlike our eighty thousand dollars, but um, you know it, that 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 is sad. I mean, it looked great on paper. I'd love to see it myself, um, but we're just not going to the cinema unless the general audience here, unless it is a big comic film, and um, I think it's not only Australian films, but uh, general art house, and um, you know. Scorsese, John Travolta just having these one-week releases over in uh, Hollywood and um, just to get Oscar and then focusing everything on the the platforms. You know? Yep. Um, okay. It's changed. The market's changed. So
0: in some ways, it's great. You know, in some ways, it's sad. I think that um, i talking to a lot of indie filmmakers from here, from the States, from the UK. There's, but there's also there's optimism to it as well because... While the release in a cinema may be out of reach compared to years, decades previous, now you have platforms to just reach out everywhere. I mean, after this, someone can listen to our interview here and then go online to Google Play or Amazon Prime and watch the movie straight away. And that's, there's some power in that.
1: Absolutely. And we're going out on eight more platforms over in America, uh, plus a bit of cable, which, of course, is really going out over there. Mm. Plus, we're getting a DVD and blue, Blu-ray release and Walmarts and all these stores over there, you know, where you can get it. Um, so, you know, there is great opportunity for the indie indie filmmaker who are making films on very, very low budgets who might have got very limited release and then just a quick DVD release. And that was it. know it's gone forever nowadays you're on a platform forever um and if you're on 10 of them you know your film's getting seen for 10 20 30 years later you know probably 50 years later and that's the optimism of the platform system that your film's always around and as long as somebody is talking about it or it's getting promoted or it gets some sort of cult status it's always going to be watched
0: yeah um Mm -hmm. The conclusion of Tabernacle 101, not to give away too much there, but it does hint at a possibility of perhaps more adventures for Frank. Um, uh, is there any type of hint whatsoever or any s- whiff of an idea of that maybe there could be a follow-up here?
1: Yeah, I've always left that open. And the thing you're referring to, yeah, is right at the end of the film. was uh, a TV show called Randall and Hopkirk that I absolutely loved back in the early 70s, um, which was about, oh, I was a kid at the time, but it was about um, a ghost detective
0: mm-hmm.
1: mm-hmm. who dead and his best friend who was alive, and they used to go around solving mysteries um, together. And uh, that reference uh, right at the end is to that. Uh, and leaving the possibility open in case, you know, somebody out there uh, wants to find us. <laughs> A sequel are, um, as, as we have now, a binge-worthy uh, series and on one of the platforms.
0: That sounds like it would be an interesting uh, follow-up right there. But for people who want to watch Tabernacle 101, you can watch it now on Amazon Prime and Google Play. Um, and also, um, Colm, you guys are on Facebook. You have a pretty good Facebook page. They always have updates, so people can check out Tabernacle 101 on Facebook for updates with any other uh, streaming news as well.
1: Absolutely, and on our website, Tabernacle 101, you can go there and sign up, uh, and you get updates all the time, if you want to. There's a little sign-up box on the the right-hand side. It's not a pop-up, it's just on the the actual website. And if you fill that in, you get updates, and we try and give you very fun information about the film. And uh, you just get like an email once every three or four weeks, uh, uh, referencing what's happening with the film.
0: Excellent. So everyone out there at Tabernacle 101, it gets a thumbs up from me. Go out there, support um, Australian movies, support Australian filmmakers, support Australian stories. And um, Colm, I thank you very much for joining me tonight. Uh, It's so good that we can get uh, together and and chat about Tabernacle 101. Hopefully in the future, with any future projects, we can have a talk again. Yeah, thanks, Matt. That was great. Thanks for having me.